Um, we're we're uh, still moving through our series on the trustworthy sayings. And as I was thinking about this, I started thinking about there's five words that can totally um, change how we view a movie. Uh, and the five words are, and they usually come after uh, the title, you know, the movie, or after like, hey, directed by, title. It'll say this, it'll say, based on a true story. And there's something about that that just elevates the game when it comes to a movie. There's something about that that when we watch a movie that's not based on a true story, we think, okay, that's cool, or it can inspire us maybe. But there's something, there's a disconnect where we think, yeah, but that will never happen. But when we watch a movie like uh, Unbroken, where it's like based on a true story, and you watch this and you're like, how does one person experience all of these things? We think there's something about it that's just amazing. Or maybe for some of us, it would be... uh, it would, it would change a movie in the fact that it would make it even more terrifying. Recently, I got the Blu-ray to, uh, uh, in the Steven Spielberg movie, Jaws. Could you imagine if Jaws was Jaws, directed by Steven Spielberg, based on a true story? You know, not a, we would not be living in Florida because we would go nowhere near any water. We wouldn't go near a retaining pond. I, I wouldn't, at least. It's bad enough, you know, just when you thought it was safe to get back in the water. If that was real... Are you kidding me? Uh, there's something about when something claims truth. In the 70s, Bob Dylan wrote a song called Hurricane. Has anyone ever heard this song? Yeah, it's a pretty famous song. And it was based on a, a true story of the life of uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter, who was in prison for uh, a murder. And he was a boxer. And he was called the Hurricane. And Bob Dylan came and visited him in, in prison. And he read his autobiography. And Bob Dylan became convinced that he was wrongly imprisoned. And so what he did was he wrote a song that claimed to tell a true story. And what happened was the song became really famous and a lot of mass appeal started to get, you know, uh, Carter's uh, sentence overturned. And and long story short, eventually a judge ruled uh, that he had been falsely tried or falsely accused or something like that. And he went free. So even claiming to tell a true story, even in a song, can even inspire us to act. I think the same thing happened recently uh, with the Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer. It claimed to tell a true story, and it, it, it elevated the game. It made us go, it's something that I need to respond to. And so when we're talking about these true and trustworthy sayings, we need to keep in mind, this is Paul towards the end of his life. He's in Rome. He's about to die, especially when we're looking at 2 Timothy. He's about to die. And so when he says... Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying. It's something that we should pay attention to. It's something that, that you know, we should, it, it should heighten uh, our ears a little bit to go, okay, what is he saying? So as we look at this, I just want us to have that in mind. Of these are trustworthy and true words. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13 is the text for today. He says this, this is the word of the Lord. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he also will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as the um, 
verse that is inscribed on this pulpit says, we wish to see Jesus today. God, I don't know what each person is coming into this room with, but we all have stories. We all have baggage. We all come into this room, uh, some of us exhausted, uh, some of us feeling pretty good, some of us just barely holding on. And what each of us needs uh, is the one thing that you promised to give us, and that is your son. Let us see him today. Amen. Uh, a couple of months ago, I had a conversation uh, with a student. We went out to lunch, as I'm prone to do in my day job. And um, it's, we had one of the most predictable conversations uh, and common conversations that I have in student ministry. And it, it's so common that it becomes predictable, where we kind of sit around lunch and we talk about anything other than God for a long time. And then at some point, because I'm the professional, I kind of have a thought that goes to my mind, oh, I should probably ask him something about God. I'm enjoying this conversation, but I should probably ruin it. Um, and at some point, I, I'll ask, I'll kind of, and it's all, always an awkward question. It's all, you have no idea how to bring this up. It's as awkward for us as it is for you. Uh, but you have no idea how to bring it up, and you kind of say something like, so what's God doing in your life? How, how's that going? Where is God right now? And he said, well, one of the most common responses that uh, I get, that our student volunteers get, that uh, other people on the student staff get, or even probably pastors get with you guys, it's this. He said, basically, I'm just not feeling it right now. I'm, not, I'm having trouble feeling it. I used to feel it. I can remember a time when I really felt God's presence. But right now, I'm not really feeling it. And I think the question underneath that isn't just one of feeling, but it's something that we all deal with. It's basically the question of how do I know? How do I know that God really does love me? How do I know that what God's really done in my life is true? That it really has worked? This is why when you were a kid, if you were like me, I grew up in the church as a Christian, and part of a rite of passage for kids is, is this experience of laying in your bed late at night and praying, God, okay, for the three millionth time, I really, really do want to be saved. You know, I really want to make sure that this thing worked. I'm not quite totally sure that, it, you know, all, you know, some things might have gotten lost in translation. It may be why you walked the aisle every chance that you got growing up. If they offered for you to walk the aisle and accept Jesus, you walked. You were like, hey, I'm going down there. I'm going to make sure that I, because there's something about us that is desperate for some type of assurance. There's something about us that's desperate to know. How do I know that God loves me? How do I know that what he's done in my life is true? And I think we think this, uh, we, or often we think this because we relate God's work in our life usually to our own moral improvement, our own getting better. In other words, like often with a student, when they're talking about, I don't really feel it right now, it's usually what they'll say is, basically, back then, I was doing a lot better at following the rules, and lately, I've really started to screw up, and so now I'm not quite sure where God stands with me. I'm not quite totally sure that that worked if now I'm not seeming to get better. And this is a part of a problem in our culture at large. Religion has become something that mainly is, has to do with me uh, gaining more mastery and control and moral improvement over my life. I come to religion, if I come to religion at all, I come to religion probably because I have a direction in my life and I started to see some gaps 
Or you have a direction for your kid's life and you start to see some gaps in them. You're like, you need God. You need to, we need to go to church. And so we go to church and we find religion. We enter into a relationship with God, hoping that it will make us better. And then suddenly, sometimes we'll begin to notice, I don't seem to be getting much better. How do I know if God really does love me? 82% of recent polls said 82% of Americans believe that God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Born again Christians... We're at 81%. Spoiler alert, it's not. It's, it's not a Bible verse. God helps those who help themselves. But it makes so much sense to us because we're Americans. We're self-made people. We have this belief that I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And God must work the same way. And often we start wondering if God really does love us because we start seeing things in our life that don't seem to be getting better. And usually when that happens, what we do is we start looking at, well, if I was more like this person, if I cared for the poor more, if I uh, stopped doing this one sin, then I keep finding myself doing more. If I, if I cared less about worldly concerns, then I would feel like God really does love me. I would know. About 10 years ago, uh, the journal of Mother Teresa uh, was published in a book, and it showed uh, that this uh, and, and Mother Teresa I'm using as an example, not because she's like the perfect Christian, but, but because she in a lot of ways represents like, hey, if I was more like that, if I was more caring for the poor, if I was more giving my life away, then at least I would be assured that God loves me. When she died, her journal showed that she suffered intense periods of doubt. And these weren't just short periods. She even said that she hadn't felt the, hadn't felt the presence of God for over 50 years. An example of her uh, example from her journal Uh, this is 17 years into her career. She wrote this. You have thrown me away as unwanted and unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer. No one on whom I can cling. No, no one alone. Where is my faith? Even deep down right in there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain? I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd in my heart and make me suffer untold agony. Mother Teresa, someone who from the outside looks like this is like the quintessential, like this is someone doing the Lord's work, helping children, helping the poor. Surely she would feel a sense of assurance deep down, but yet she was plagued by desolation and despair. And so what we need in these moments, what we need for our lives, and what my student that I was talking to needs, what I need, and what Mother Teresa needs, is a trustworthy saying that doesn't come from within us, but from outside of us. We need a statement or a hook that could hold all of our experience, something that we could put all of our experience on, and it would hold it. It's one thing to talk about our good times, our successes, our victories, the times that we feel close to God and when we feel His presence. But what trustworthy statement, what statement could really hold all of us? What about when we don't seem to be getting better? What about when we haven't felt his presence in years? Some of us right now feel this way. Some of us, as I was reading her journal entry, resonated with that. Some of us know what it feels like to go years without feeling the presence of God. What trustworthy statement that's not just a Christian cliche or colloquialism or whatever could, could, uh, could actually help that. And the truth is, we're looking for a story that makes sense out of our experience. 
The novelist Ursula K. Le Guin uh, said, people who can't make the world into a story go mad. People who can't make the world into a story go mad. There's something about human beings where we have these experiences and we have to make sense of them. We need a story that makes sense of them. David Dark wrote a, uh, wrote a recent book called Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. And in it, he defines religion as a controlling story for our lives. It's a story that binds our world and our experiences together. It's the story we tell ourselves about who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going. But the question is, is this story trustworthy and true? Does it make sense out of everything? Your failures, your faults, your weaknesses, your suffering, or even your despair. So I want to look at this passage. We're just going to walk through the trustworthy saying and, and walk through it in the sense of he talks, Paul here talks about something that happens in the past, something that happens in the future, and then something that happens in the present. So first, Paul talks about our past. He says this, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Paul here is describing a past event. He's referring to our conversion. And this is an if then, if Then, if this is true, then this is also true. If we have died with Christ, then logically it is required that therefore we live with him. And it's important to understand that each of these lines is written in the indicative. The indicative is the tense that basically just describes reality. This is what we were kind of talking about earlier with truth doesn't care what you think about it. It doesn't care how you feel about it. It doesn't care if you like it. That's just truth. Truth stands on its own. It's objective. It's simply stating this is reality. If I really don't like the truth of gravity and I really want to go out and fly because Katy Perry told me I could and I go up on the building and jump off, I'm falling. You know, that's, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter if I like it. It doesn't matter if I spend my whole life going, oh my gosh, I hate gravity. It doesn't change the truth. And so in each of these statements, Paul is saying, this is just what is true. This is how God works. If we have died with him, then we will live with him. If we're going to understand this line, uh, we need to look at uh, two other passages in Paul's earlier writings where he mentions this idea. The amazing thing about these, these, each of these lines is they're echoed throughout scripture, throughout the New Testament especially. And so there's two passages I want to look at, Romans 6, 5 through 8, and Colossians 3, uh, 1 through 4. So Romans 6, it says this, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. It's almost the exact same thing. And here's what Paul is saying here. Is that Christ died in our place. And therefore, we died with Christ. The penalty for your sin, the penalty for your sin is death. That's, a, that's kind of another true thing about life. It doesn't matter if you like it. It doesn't matter if you disagree. That's just the way God has set it up. That's true. The penalty, penalty for your sin is death. And in God's mind, when God looks at you, he sees someone who has already died because you and I have died in Christ. This is the whole idea of Christ as our substitute, that he died in our place. And therefore, in a way, we died with him. We have died to the power of sin and therefore we live in freedom. 
We, were di- we died with him while we were still sinners. We, we died with him not when we got ourselves together. This isn't about moral improvement. This is about sinners dying in Jesus and being brought to life. And this also means that we'll continue to die to ourselves. It means we will live a lifestyle of, in a way, death and resurrection. We'll continue to die to our sin. Again, it's indicative. This is the reality of what will happen in our lives. And this may not feel like it's true, but that's the beauty of truth. It doesn't care how you feel. It's just true. Everything that has been required of you has already been paid. That's true. If it doesn't feel like it, have good news. Truth doesn't care what you feel. God has paid it all. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, it says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's what Paul's saying. Our lives, our truest selves, the, 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 self that, the thing that's truest about you, are united with Christ. They're hidden in him. What does it mean that our lives are hidden in Christ? It means that they are out of sight. That, that when we look inward, we should not expect to see here our righteousness that, that our righteousness is declared onto us and that it's we're united in Christ and we are hidden. Our lives are hidden in him. This is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. It doesn't just mean that, you know, the economy's bad and I'm walking by faith and not by sight. What it means is for each of us, when we look ourselves in the mirror and we see what sinners we are, when we see the depth of our sin and the Christian life As you die to your sin, basically what that will look like is you will become more and more and more aware of just how deep your sin goes. It's not like you'll die to your sin and then just all of a sudden be like, man, I found out I'm a really good guy. You will find more and more how much you have been loved because how little you have uh, to offer. And so what it means to walk by faith is to walk in faith knowing that if all evidence is to the contrary that I am righteous. If everything I see in my life looks like there, is, there can't be any righteousness in me, it's already been declared that I am righteous and my life is hidden in him. So we kind of understand this, that there is, in a way, there's the real you that's sitting in this room and then there's this ideal you that, that you want to be moving towards. There's this ideal you that's perfect. There's this ideal you that has finally moved past. Whenever you think about yourself in the future, at least for me, whenever I think about myself in the future, I never have the same you know, flaws and bad habits that I do now. I'm always in shape. I'm always finally got it together. You know, I've always like, I'm like perfectly, you know, present in every opportunity. I'm never like on my phone while my kids or wife are trying to talk to me. I'm perfect. And the truth is that you'll never be that, odds are you will never be that ideal self in this life. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not about you becoming perfect. It's not about you using religion to get where you wanted to get all along. It's about us learning to trust, despite all evidence, that we have already been declared that we're there, that we've already been declared righteous. Because our righteousness is hidden with Christ and God, and that's the true story. 
that you are in Christ and therefore your righteousness is there too. So he also talks about the future, that there are two destinations for each of us, endurance or denial. And I'm going to start with denial because it's the bad news and we'll get to the good news. Uh, He says this, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Now, this sounds harsh. When I first read this, I thought, oh, my gosh, do I have to actually preach this? Um, But again, a reminder, this is in the indicative. This is just stating the truth. This is stating the reality of how God operates. And we can't just kind of get away from this by being like, Paul had a tendency to kind of be a little harsh, but Jesus was super nice because what Paul is saying here is exactly what Jesus said. In Matthew 10, 33, Jesus says, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my father in heaven. So what does it mean to deny God? This isn't just simply um, to uh, refu- you know, fail to properly uh, acknowledge him when you're at the bank and someone says like, Oh, what are you doing this weekend? Well, I should say I'm going to church because I'm a Christian, you know, but, or something like that. Like, that's what, growing up, I always thought, like, oh my gosh, I have to set every opportunity to, I'm, to, I'm a Christian, by the way, you know, it's not that. It's not, what it means is to deny the gift of what Jesus offers us. What it means is to, is, is, he's talking about apostasy. It's a, it's a full and final walking away from the faith and never coming back. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those, and this is is sad, those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And what he's talking about there is judgment is when God says, if you want nothing to do with me, thy will be done. You'll have it. You'll have nothing to do with me. If you walk away from the free gift of my grace, if you're stupid enough to walk into judgment only with what you're, whatever you have to bring, if you want to do that, okay. And that's the promise here is that if we deny him, if we deny this offer to trust that our righteousness is hidden in him, and instead we want to declare ourselves righteous and we want to stand before God and say, no, 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 you love me because I've got this, 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 and this then what he's saying here is that will get us nowhere when it comes to a holy God. If we deny him, he will deny us. This is kind of, uh, in a vague way, talked about in John 6, 66 through 68. It says this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, he turns to his disciples and he said, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To deny him would be to walk away from the one who has the words of eternal life. To deny him would be to to walk away from the one who has died for us while we were yet sinners. And who offers us his righteousness. And declares us clean. And just in case if you are fearing that at some point in your life maybe you denied him. Or at some point in college you had a time when you left the faith. You know someone who's kind of going through that. If you, if you're, or if you're in here, statistically there's probably someone in here who in your heart. You haven't like told anyone yet. But in your heart you are about one inch from walking away from the whole thing. And you maybe even are starting to worry, is it, is it even, can I even come back? 
And that's like a big, that could be a big fear. Can I even come back after I have left, after I have walked away? Peter, the one who even said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Uh, when Jesus was being tried, we all know this, uh, when, or maybe some of us don't, but when Jesus was being tried, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, when Jesus needed him most, denied Jesus three times. Same Greek word for, for, for this. He denied Jesus three times. And what does Jesus do to him? When Jesus resurrects from the dead and when Jesus, when it kind of becomes clear that Jesus was actually in control all along, what does Jesus do to him? He comes to him and three times he looks him in the eye and he asks him, Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Three times for each of the times that he denied him. And it even says that the third time it grieved Peter because at that point he knew what Jesus was doing. But in that, Jesus reinstates him. Jesus, he, each time he says, well, then feed my sheep. Not just like, hey, you know, okay, you can kind of come along, but we're always going to remember that and, and you're going to be kind of second place. No, Peter becomes one of the main leaders in the church. So the second part of the future, if we endure, we will also reign with him. What does it mean to endure? Uh, Jesus said this too, Matthew 24, 13, but the one that endures to the end will be saved. Uh, the root, the root word, the, the kind of the root of endure uh, literally means to abide. In John fifteen four, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. If we endure, then we will reign with him. I love that he uses the idea of endurance because there's nothing pretty about endurance. There's nothing flashy about endurance. In fact, studies are showing more and more that one of the key ingredients of like successful people is not talent, is not how easily they're able to do everything, is not, is not always being successful. It's the idea of grit. It's having grit. It's, it's someone who just, despite all evidence to the contrary, despite continual, continual failure, never gives up, just keeps moving. I had a friend growing up uh, when I, I ran cross country in high school because it was the only uh, sport that didn't cut people. Um, and therefore, I was all about it because uh, I wanted to be an athlete, but I wasn't good. Um, and uh, running cross country, uh, you know, cross, cross country runners are you know, notoriously just the skinniest people in the whole world. They, they're, they're just matchsticks running through a race and you're just thinking, guys, can we eat something? Um, and uh, I had a friend who ran cross country with us and he was ex- actually extremely overweight. And when he came out to run, um, everyone, you know, everyone was like, uh, you know, what are you doing? Uh, there's a lot of snickering. Um, but he wanted to do it because he wanted to get in shape. Uh, it was, an, again, a sport that he could do. Um, and so he, he, he ran cross country with us. And I remember the first race that we had, um, he, uh, he came in absolute dead last place, like running, you know, running in last place. And the, the people that trail on the bike, you know, are like right behind him the whole time. And I just couldn't imagine like what that would have been like for him to, to run, you know, that slowly and have everyone watching him. But what was so fascinating was that at the very end of the race, for one, he never actually quit running. Even if he was just barely bending his knees, he never stopped running. 
And, and the other amazing thing was at the end of the race, everyone in the whole race, the whole, you know, there's all those tents. It looks like, you know, some medieval war like camp uh, at a cross country meet. And except it's just a lot of tiny, skinny people. But, uh, and, but at the end of the race, all these people, you just see this kind of merge of people, this flood of people moving over. Because as he's finishing the race, he just summoned up everything he had left in him. And he ran as hard as he could towards the finish line. And everyone in the whole race, 500, 600 plus people, were cheering him on. And, and it's an amazing picture because he had no business being there. He really did. I mean, he was, he had no business being there. He had no, like, flashy ability. He, he looked, it looked, you know, sloppy. It was not like the people who won the race. It was not as, you know, gliding through these hills and, uh, and coming to the finish line and, you know, looking at their watch. Oh, yeah, my mile split was bad in mile two. You know, it, none of that. It was just pure grit and endurance. It was just someone barely finishing the race. And the beautiful thing about the Christian life is that it's not about us winning the race. It's not about us kind of gliding through life and taking everything in stride and being, and being these amazing athletes. It's about us, by the power of God's spirit, enduring, even if it's just barely getting by, having faith and never stopping running. So lastly, in the present He says this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Christ remains faithful on our behalf. The Christian life is one of living in faith that God is faithful to us, even when we are faithless. What he means by faithless is everything short of apostasy. You know, so so I'm still saying that I, Jesus, I'm putting my trust in Jesus. I'm, I, I'm pursuing Jesus. I'm not leaving the church. I'm not trying to leave this, but I'm really having a hard time uh, believing it. It's what my student was saying. I, I'm not feeling it right now. That when we subjectively in and of ourselves are faithless, then he objectively remains faithful. In many ways, the prayer of the Christian life is in Mark 9, 24. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. One commentator pointed out that this is the only if then in this uh, trustworthy saying that doesn't really logically follow. Each one of the other ones makes sense. If we died in Christ, we now live in, with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny, then he will deny. And if we're faithless, then he's faithful. This is the absurdity of grace. If you and I are faithless, lacking, wandering, and doubting, if you, uh, Christ is in heaven, remaining faithful on our behalf. If your son or your daughter seems to be drifting away from the faith, and that brings up an anxiety in you, remember, if we're faithless, he is faithful. Whatever it is you are walking through right now, and you're beginning to doubt, know that when we lose heart, Christ is faithful to his promises on our behalf. The pressure is off. Everything really is going to be okay. I want to conclude with that idea of the pressure. Like, who, who is the pressure on here? As, as I read this passage the first time I read it, I, I felt this pressure kind of rising up in my chest. And, and as I even read it for you, some of you might have thought, oh my gosh, like, you know, these are some big ifs. 
you know, when we're saying this is true, we're saying something is at stake here. The stakes can be kind of high and they feel uh, and it can feel like, man, there's more I got to do. Some of us, the things that this passage bring up can bring up big questions for our assurance. How do I know that I will endure? How do I know I won't deny? How do I make sure I continue to die to sin? It's amazing that whenever we hear an indicative, whenever we hear a reality, there's something in us that always fills in the how. There's something in us that always fills in, the, okay, if that's the reality, then how do I get there? Well, it's my job to get there. It's more intense, focused effort for me to arrive there. But the, the amazing thing about this passage is that there's only one imperative. Indicative describes a reality. Imperative is a command. It's a do this. There's only one imperative in the passage, and it's at the very beginning. Remember Jesus Christ. This is the how, the how-to of Christianity. It's not more effort. It's not more even inspiration for more effort. This isn't the locker room speech before the big game. This is the game. Remembering Jesus. This is actually how, that we, how we even change By remembering that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth for the sole purpose of letting us nail him to a cross that we could be forgiven or loved in spite of who we are. Robert Farrar Capon says, I do not have to know or feel I am saved. I cannot do that. I do not have to sweat and strain to be saved. I cannot do that. I have only to trust that in him it is all handed to me on a silver platter. And that... I can do gladly. It's the only really fun thing in the world. What the gospel offers us is not subjective comfort. It's not a comfort within ourselves. It's not a comfort that when we look inward, we go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe God because he's making me all happy inside. I believe God because he's making me a lot better now. The, the, the comfort of Christianity, the assurance of Christianity is objective It's something outside of myself, something I look to. When I doubt if God loves me, I look to the cross. You and I don't have assurance because of something that Jesus has done in our lives, because that is always subject to change. You don't have assurance because you walked an aisle. You don't have assurance because you prayed a prayer. All of those are subjective. They are within us. No, if something is going to be trustworthy, if a story is going to be true, it must be from outside of ourselves. It must be something that we can look at, something we can see and something we can know. It must be something like the cross. Ultimately, you and I have assurance because 2,000 years ago, on a hill just outside the city walls of Jerusalem, in a turbulent province of the greatest empire that has ever existed, there was a very typical, typical execution of three common criminals. One of them was the Son of God. And on that hill, God did business with humanity once and for all. And he did business with you in Christ once and for all. And everything that is ever needed to be accomplished by mankind to get right with God by you or by me was not only started, but finished. You and I simply receive what was done for us on the cross. We are loved in such a way that if we never got better, God's love for us would not change because it's not based on us, but based on Christ. These are trustworthy and true words. We are free, free to fail and free to love. And in our freedom, what you'll find is you'll begin to grow. You'll begin to get better. The spirit will do his work in you. 
but only when you realize that if you don't, God will still love you. This is your true and trustworthy story that if you have died with him, then you live with him. So remember Jesus Christ who loved you while you were still a sinner and gave his life up for you. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would give us faith to believe that you really have um, died for us, that everything that we needed to do to get right with you has been done, and that you have declared us righteous. God, so often in our lives, it doesn't, um, it can seem like you're absent. It can seem like you're gone. It can seem like uh, we haven't seen your work in us as clearly as we'd like. And so often we just see more and more of our own sin. But I pray for each of us here that we would remember Jesus and that you would give us faith to trust that what he's done really is a true story. And it really has been done. Amen.